Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Joining me today is Patrick Smith of Disenthrall. Patrick, how is it going, brother? Oh, man, it's good. It's it's always good to be back on your show. I enjoy every conversation that I've had with you to date. I'm looking forward to another one, though I must apologize in advance for my um, unpolished turd-like appearance. I was told specifically, though, that if I didn't rock a neck beard at least once in a while, I couldn't call myself a libertarian. So I apologize, but such high criteria. It, you know? I think that's why we're not seeing the growth that we absolutely deserve. <laughs> too many, too m many hurdles people have to uh, j jump over to, uh, to to be on our squad. Where I know, shaving. God. Yeah, really. Where <laughs> is the uh, best place to find your uh, collection of work? Disenthrall.me is the website. You can find all of our platforms and links and content and most everything we do on all of our channels there. Isn't it cool how nice Odyssey is getting and how user-friendly <laughs> it is and how Float what? is getting better every day? Let me tell you how awesome it is. Yeah, I, I'm doing a stream tomorrow, and for the first time, I have the ability to schedule a live stream out in advance so that people aren't sitting there waiting, not knowing when it's going to start. It's like one of the final pieces of their streaming puzzle that they're putting together. It's getting so good. I'm talking to uh, uh, Stefan Kinsella tomorrow uh, on an intellectual property, and I was able to schedule the stream, so I'm super excited. Let's get into some of uh, the, the things that, while at first glance, seem very philosophical and rather esoteric, I think they are the uh, general bedrock assumptions that allow things like the COVID regime, the war on terror, the world wars, uh, the regulatory state. I think these basic assumptions make us so much worse off and because they almost go uh, unexamined to a uh, to, to a large extent. So let's start with uh, James Madison's work in Federalist number 51. It's quite a long paragraph, but here is the vitally uh, important sentence. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. How do you get into that mindset, give it a you know, sort of steel man, that concept, and then refine it? Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of uh, self-refuting logic, like men are evil, therefore we need government, but who do we have other than men to run this government? And if men can, you know, have this capacity for evil, then how are we going to possibly have this govern government thing govern us in a non-evil way? It's especially because the evil are attracted to the power of government. So it's almost like, if anything, the only useful thing that government could possibly be would be like a honeypot to catch all the psychopaths. And just like anybody that tries to get involved with government, we put their name on a list and then sort of disassociate from them. <laughs> well, could you imagine being like Madeleine Albright or Henry Kissinger or the big new Brzezinski? They came from like all over the globe to come to America and they were able to uh, tyrannize people in such a way that they never would have been able to in the absence of a state apparatus. I mean, as bad as CEOs can be in the free market, which they absolutely can have, they still can't take a dime out of my pocket unless I voluntarily give it to them. So it almost like it takes this evil and it channels it in a much more uh, productive way. Of course, there's still shortcomings and everything, but if we're against people having power, 
Why do you think that people just refuse? Uh, they can write these big books on very big topics, but they just don't differentiate between social or economic power and political power, vo voluntary power and violent power. Um, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, maybe not, but I, I firmly believe that it's their parenting because we're we're brought into this world in a power structure, in a hierarchy uh, where our parents um, sort of rule over us for a number of years. And most parents rule over their kids in a very matter of fact, um, it is what it is. It's right because I say so, do what I say because I told you to sort of paradigm. That's the relationship that most people have with their parents for most of the beginning of their life. And so it just makes sense then that simply because they get a little bit older and become adults, that they won't still expect that to be how the world works. And so when they're no longer sort of under the direct control of their parents, they still have a built-in innate sort of subconscious expectation that there needs to be some parental figure out there still telling them what to do and controlling them and saying, do as I say, because I said so. So the government naturally fills sort of their parents' shoes, which is one of the reasons why I spend so much time talking about parenting and principled parenting and how to create a free society in your own home. That way your kids will grow up to not have that subconscious expectation of being ruled. There is uh, one critique of the uh, freedom position that uh, I've started to hear more from monarchists or people who advocate national socialism, <laughs> which is that in order for one to give orders, one must learn to follow orders. In other words, don't be thinking that you know how to run so many things you need to sort of submit to the government, and maybe you could later occupy government positions once you have more wisdom. But to think that I don't have to abide by the law that has uh, been around for so long, uh, it's kind of uppity, kind of arrogant, and selfish. How do you respond to that? Um, generally the older a person was or is, or the longer ago they lived, the less right they were about things. So this like default position that we have that ancient wisdom is somehow special or deserves deference simply because it's been around a while. I mean, never tear down a fence until you know why it was built. But once you know why it was built, if it needs to go, it needs to go. Like just because it's an old fence doesn't mean you got to keep it around. Uh, hopefully I used enough analogies there to make the point, but, uh, I guess, you know, so just because a lot of people have been taught over a, a long period of time to see a just authority where it doesn't exist does not prove that that authority is just and on a point upon a reexamination and, uh, and a reanalysis, we can say, oh, Hey, look, there was actually nothing there. People, people thought there were witches for a hundred years and they did terrible things based on that knowledge. And then one day knowledge improved and we no longer burn people at the stake for being witches. It's the same kind of thing. We learn as we go, we correct our past mistakes. We, we fill in the holes in our knowledge and certainly authority. And the fact that it doesn't rightfully come from anywhere is one of those things that I think we're on the forefront of trying to teach people. Right? Well, it also assumes that because I don't like, this order giver called the government doesn't mean I don't ever follow anyone's rules ever. Mm. It just means I have like some basic criteria because all I do every time when I get that is I always issue them 
a number of orders. Sometimes I'll tell them to give me a fourth of their income. Sometimes I'll tell them to uh, work on uh, the, the cover of the book that I'm planning on writing because it needs work. And then I say, well, look, but before you start giving orders, learn to follow orders. It, it's like they don't have – they have this, uh, no criteria for – the, the state. You just have to blindly follow their orders. But if anyone else has something very reasonable, well, that they should be able to opt out of if they don't like. Well, that that makes everything else you've said invalid. They have this blatant double standard. Speaking of double standard, here is Alexander Hamilton saying more or less the same thing, but from a different angle. He says, why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. People are ignorant. We need a state. How do you respond? I would respond by using almost his exact words. Why on earth would you think we would need a government instituted at all? The passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice uh, without constraint i don't i guess that prob that part wouldn't go because you can't expect the bad guys to constrain to constrain themselves which is kind of the point he said that, that would be my first response like he, how, how can you possibly institute a government because the passions of men aren't going to conform to the dictates of reason or and justice and then he says without constraint but the constraint would be wrapped up in a justice system that the passions of men are not going to conform to and we have like 200 years of evidence that they don't do that. Like the constitution is a joke now because the passions of men don't conform to the dictates of the justice it provides. I'd love to tell Alexander Hamilton, appreciate King George the third, hate him, but also appreciate him. You got no clue what's <laughs> in store. We get Woodrow Wilson, FDR. I, yep. I, I mean, just so many things that, uh, that, that came after, uh, Hamilton said, we are now forming a Republican government, real Liberty is neither found in despotism or the extremes of democracy, but in moderate government. What's wrong with being moderate? Well, he he left out the actual opposite of the things he was talking about. The, the options are not despotism and moderate government. The options are despotism and freedom. And he stopped kind of halfway in between there uh, with moderate government. Um, that's the problem with that statement. It, it assumes that the uh, the Overton Windows border is moderate government and despotism, which is obviously not the case. Like you have to justify any government at all. Um, you have to justify forcibly controlling people. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna. Th that is just a, such a beautiful false dichotomy. I'm gonna have to start yep. using that. You you want to give me a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars? Fine, <laughs> let's keep it at a hundred. Well, okay, uh, I've got you from zero to 100. What a brilliant what a brilliant way to, to achieve my yep. ends. Finally, yep. Hamilton, there can be no truer principle than this, that every individual of the community at large has an equal right to the protection of government. We need government as a tool to achieve equality. How do you respond? I guess I would just say that you you shouldn't try and force services on people. Like, what if they don't want the protection of the government? Are you saying that just because they have an equal right to it that you have a right to force it down their throat if they don't want it? Like, where where does that even come from? Just, just saying things. Like, man, I wish I lived back then. I would have loved to have debate some of these guys. I would have been in the anti anti federalist camp, obviously. But yeah, this this would have been a fantastic debate.
I, I would have loved to have heard him expand on that specifically. I, I found the origin of the quote. It's not like he defends it or anything. It's much more mm. of the uh, an obvious axiom. But, I mean, government provides education. Is everyone equally educated? They provide protection. Is everyone equally uh, protected? Certainly not. Uh, government uh, provides a, a regulatory state in order to keep us safe. Well, what happens is they end up benefiting some at the expense of others. So simply declaring, even if I thought equality was something good in and of itself, why would I want a monopoly that I can't opt out of funding? That would be like the worst way to achieve whatever I wanted to uh, get get, uh, get my hands on. And why no, would I? No incentive to innovate and no incentive to uh, lower the price. And why would I want an equal right to the protection of an organization governed by men whose passions keep them from conforming to reason and justice? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the, the guy who risks his life in a duel with Aaron Burr. Uh, he, he goes, you know, p people are just too, too passionate that they, they don't use enough reason. And yeah. my head has been blown off, uh, because yeah. of my ego. Uh, yeah, just unbelievable. Or, you know, it's like George Bush saying people out there are spreading false theories about, you know, what goes on in the world as he's like saying, well, Saddam had his intel agencies in Prague meet with Muhammad Atta, who did 9-11, and they're shipping yellow cake from Niger to Iraq. It's like, while they can sometimes have a good point about their opposition, it always applies to them tenfold. Yeah, it's too bad yeah. that passion sometimes takes uh, takes over people. I heard How a saying does that recently not apply tenfold that, to the government? Yeah, I heard a saying recently that has fit so many situations. It's confession through projection. Like what they say you're doing is actually what they're doing. What the, what attributes they're putting on you, actually their attributes. Every time. F uh, any final thoughts on those before we move on to questions for free market moralists? No, I'm ready for questions, man. I'm ready for uh, I'm ready for this Rawlsian nonsense. So the author Amia Saravasan. Uh, opens with the concept of the veil of ignorance. Now, it's important to mention that uh, humor has made the point that this is like the most influential uh, political work in the English language in the last hundred years. So that's why it's so important to tackle, even though Rawls isn't brought up by politicians so uh, you know uh, all the time. Uh, so many of, with the exception of probably Rousseau, Rawls is much, uh, much to be uh, influenced when it comes to a lot of presumptions around uh, the, the ideas of economics and what is just. The author says, in 1971, John Rawls published A Theory of Justice, the most significant articulation and defense of political liberalism of the 20th century. Rawls proposed that the structure of a just society was that was one that a group of rational actors would come up with if they were operating behind a veil of ignorance that is provided they had no prior knowledge what their gender, age, wealth, talents, ethnicity, and education would be in the imagined society, since no one would know in advance where in society they would end up. Rational agents would select a society in which everyone was guaranteed basic rights, including equality of opportunity. Thoughts on John Rawls and the veil of ignorance. Okay. Um, I'll start by saying that his work, um, if, if I was to summarize, would really come off like he started with what he wanted, which was some forms of socialism. And then he tried to back into a philosophy to sort of 
justify it. And to evidence that claim, I will point out that he doesn't ever even get far enough back down to foundational philosophy to address David Hume's work and uh, Hume's law, the Hume's guillotine, where you have to get an ought out of an is. You have to get um, a, de a declarative statement about what should be from a statement about what exists in reality. He doesn't even get that far. He just stops at this part where, um, where, where he sort of declares uh, almost baselessly that we should construct a moral framework and behave as if we could be born into any body at any time and place. Um, just sort of, just sort of states that without really uh, building an argument up behind that from first principles, or at least to tell us how he gets around Hume's guillotine or Hume's law. Right? For, for, do you want me to go into, I guess I could define that for the people that aren't aware. It, it's kind of, you can't get an ought from an is. That means you can't look at something in reality and somehow glean from that a statement about what should be. So we can't say the sky is blue, therefore I should wear blue sunglasses. Like there's nothing in nature that makes a statement about what kind of sunglasses I should wear. All we can say about nature is that the sky is blue. My behavior and what I do is based on my personal goals and what I want to have happen in my life and what I personally value, which is all subjective. Um, he just kind of skips over that entire layer of philosophical foundation work and moves directly to what he thinks this he collectivizes literally everyone and then declares how every single member of that collective would want to exist. But if you watch, and, and this is this is a this is a fair quote in this article from his actual work, rational agents would select a society. That's actually the a, a big key to this equation. If you disagree with what he thinks every member of that collective would want, you're just irrational. That's the argument. If you don't agree with him, you're not in the group of people we call rational, so your opinion is dis, dis, discarded. Uh, so I guess that would be my summary intro about Rawlsianism and his work. Yeah, I also think the existence of gambling sort of throws quite the wrench in Rawls's worldview. Like, well, if, you know, people would just want basic guaranteed safety and all this other stuff. First of all, if you want guarantees, make sure you can opt out of uh, funding bad actors because there are no guarantees in this world. Just as government controlling education, again, doesn't uh, mean everyone is educated. But uh, maybe people would risk uh, would put quite a bit of uh, risk in what life they would uh, that they would end up living. I don't think it's so clear that everyone would just want a welfare state where no one fell through. Well, what if I couldn't uh, really achieve my ends? What if I wanted to sort of roll the dice? Well, we have every reason to believe that people would engage in a high degree of risk because when I drive by the Indian reservation, uh, it's always full with cars. It's, it's it's illegal to gamble in Arizona unless you're like in this small area. It's always no packed. It, it was the first no. place uh, during the, ra COVID. the rational people would want that. Ah, the so. rational oh, shows over. Thanks everyone for watching. Yeah. I, I forgot yeah. the rational people were against yeah. me. Yep. Guaranteed equality of opportunity requires substantial access to resources, shelter, medical care, education. Rawls's rational actors would also make their society a redistributive one, ensuring a decent standard of life for everyone. So he he just completely ignores the problem of 
uh, the, there being a moral double standard. I mean, the, Patrick and Disenthrall get to steal from everyone so long as a microscopic percentage go towards uh, providing people with shelter and medical care. Uh, and, I mean, yes. In yep. 1974, Robert Nozick countered with anarchy, state, and utopia. He argued that a just society was simply one that resulted from an unfettered free market. Isn't that nice? How the, the, the straw man, even, even from the wisest minds, they can't even give us uh, the, the credibility. Yep. What Rawls's quote is uh, from uh, uh, Anarchy State in Utopia is his general uh, opposition to statism or a socialist society. He says the socialist society would have to forbid capitalist acts between consenting adults. So he says, yeah, there are absolutely downfalls to this system of free uh, a free market in friendships. There can be bad friends, a free market in marriages. There could be bad marriages, but we still shouldn't outlaw acts between consenting adults if they're in the economic realm. If goods and services and money are involved, there's no uh, th there's no principal difference. How do you respond to unfettered free market? Well, it's almost a double um, straw man because I believe Nozick was for yeah, a night watchman state, uh, which was, is a, yeah. a, minarch a minarchism, which is a fettered free market by his own definition. Like there's some fetters in there, minimal fetters, but there's still some fetters. Uh, so I guess that's the first thing I'd point out is that um, the, the other thing I'd point out is more of a theme of this whole article. I'm sure you're linking it in the description, but anybody reading this, we'll see that most of her conclusions that she draws starting now is just sort of one of obvious disdain. It's an appeal to common sense, which, which is a mirror of Rawls work. If you don't agree, you're just not rational. You're, you just don't have this common sense that I have. You so must not dumb. have been behind the veil. I was behind the veil. Yeah. I, yeah I'm yeah, part yeah. of the rational group. So, so uh, Nozick has a great example of Wilt Chamberlain. He goes, all right, socialists, let's, let's give you everything you want. Everything is equal as far as outcome goes. Wilt Chamberlain, the great basketball player, is able to produce a good or service that is in high demand and others freely pay him for that good or service. Then he is entitled to his riches. Any attempt to redistribute his wealth so long as it is earned through free market exchange is, Nozick says, forced labor. Thoughts on the Wilt Chamberlain analogy and force redistribution. I don't like how the the word entitled is used throughout Rawls' work and as well in this article. I mean, I, I guess I take issues with the weird stuff. So <laughs> you have me on your show. I'm going to give you my take, right? And so the, pro the problem that I have with this is this word entitled. It sort of flips the burden of proof for justifying actions. Like, one does not have to justify to you what he is entitled to own. You would have to justify pointing guns at somebody to take it from him. So by using this concept of entitled throughout this article, I think it puts it puts the people that shouldn't be on the back foot on the back foot. So that's the first, yeah, that, that that's my response there. But um, the, I guess to speak more directly to the example of the basketball player, you you have to show i mean you can show and you can evidence this by the fact that he makes a lot of money that a lot of people in small amounts in the aggregate value his ability to play this game 
more than they value that large amount of money. Otherwise, they wouldn't have voluntarily given it to him. And so to sort of elbow your way into this free exchange between people that are enjoying, they want to hand you their money because they want to see this guy perform. And this guy wants to perform and wants that money. So it's just like jam your ass in the middle of that thing and say, no, 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 no. Sorry, this is too unbalanced in my opinion. Y'all, you know, y'all MFers need to, to, to quit it. And, you know, these are guns, right? Like that that's barbaric and stupid and irrational and not common sense. Checkmate. So the author says uh, <laughs> um, that uh, societies today in the West tend to be more Rawlsian than Nozekian. But huh. since the 1970s, they have become steadily more Nozekian, such creeping changes as the erosion of the welfare state, the privatization of the public sphere, and increased protections for corporations go along with a moral worldview according to which the free market is the embodiment of justice. The rise in Nozekian thinking concedes, coincides with a dramatic increase in economic inequality in the United States over the past five decades. The top 1% of Americans saw their income multiplied by 275% in the period from 79 to 07, while the middle 60% saw only a 40% increase. She then uh, bashes the uh, Republicans, <laughs> you, you know, the, those Nozekian Republicans who always shrink mm. the government drastically. Okay. Yeah. When she, uh, of course, n no citation for uh, since they have become steadily more Nozekian, cutting the welfare state by every metric. The state has grown both in by like, every uh, metric, unless I am in Eastern Europe uh, behind uh, Stal uh, Khrushchev's wall. Uh, I think government has drastically increased uh, how if you had to just say on your feet to expose that lie to someone, what would you say? I would just ask them to to evidence exactly what you said. Name an area of government that's actually gotten smaller. Name the number of government organizations that existed in 1970 and name the number of government organizations that exist today. <laughs> On its face, it's going to be a lot more. The numbers are higher. The, the expenditures are astronomically higher. The number of employees, astronomically higher. The number of regulations, higher. Like every metric. Just show me something. Put the burden of proof where it belongs on the person making the claim. This is full of shit. Prove it. I mean, it's absurd. Can I cut on your show? At, I apologize. E even Nixon, of course, uh, e even Nixon at the time was engaging in uh, price controls. In August of uh, 72, he uh, d took the uh, final uh, step to remove the gold standard from backing the U.S. dollar. What this was was the ultimate green light to the uh, federal reserve to print as much as you want because if you have to gain your uh power and position well you mostly would get it through money through taxation but now that you can just print an unlimited amount or increase the digits in any account you'd like according to the modern monetary theorists which okay they're right about it's not actually printing dollars but this is the ultimate green light for uh, for, for the tyrants of the world, or even if you just think they're all well kind, meaning uh, well meaning kind people, this is like the greatest uh, uh, system of inequality that you can provide. Yep. We need a monopoly on the currency, and it's just Patrick of, of disenthrall. Uh, how is there anything equal about you getting to print money at will? And if I print it, or even sometimes use alternative currencies like the guy with the Liberty Dollar, well, he goes to jail. Well, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that is the most unequal 
uh, system you could have. So to say that, well, there's been uh, inequality between uh, the 1% and the rest of us, yeah, the, I don't get Federal Reserve checks in the mail. The, the money isn't sent to me first. It's usually the big banks and the 1%. Uh, th- th- this is just uh, this is just unbelievable. So I guess the last part before the questions is inequality exists as a cause of result of the free market. Inequality is bad. Uh, therefore, the state should uh, redistribute uh, outcomes in order uh, f- for there not to be such a power differential among the citizenry, where some can basically hold the others hostage. I think. Inequality exists as an effect of inequality that exists. So people are not the same. Desires are not the same. Um, Demand is not the same. Value is subjective. Um, IQ is different um, between everyone. Um, Starting conditions, uh, parenting, uh, psychological damage. uh, You just like, there's, there's a long list of ways that everyone is different. So out of that inequality, you can't say, oh, no, 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 when we let all these unequal people interact voluntarily and absent coercion, that somehow that free interaction is what causes the uh, unequal outcomes. No, 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 the whole thing's based on reality, which is unequal. Everybody is different. Everything is unequal. Capitalism, I, I said this recently on Twitter and uh, triggered a couple people. Capitalism runs on inequality. Inequality is the fuel for capitalism and just to summarize without going into a long tirade when you have two people one has money and a demand for something and the other one has a product and a demand for money that's inequality between those two people one has more money than they want and not enough product and the other one has more product than they want and not enough money capitalism feeds on that inequality makes those people closer together economically and in terms of demand by transferring money and transferring product reducing inequality. It feeds on inequality. Without inequality, it, it's like running a gasoline engine without gas. You have to have something that has more energy bound up in it that you can then reduce and increase the entropy of to extract energy from to propel your lawnmower. It's it's uh, That's capitalism sort of in a nutshell. And this idea that it creates this inequality is absolute nonsense. That's a great point. It's not that it creates inequality. It it reveals inequality that already exists. It's like saying, you know, microphones are really immoral because they create inequality between me and Adele. No, uh, the, it's not the microphone creating it. She's a much better singer. Uh, basketballs are immoral because it makes LeBron James and I less equal. No, he's very <laughs> talented. It's a, it's a tool he uses to reveal this inequality that already exists. So uh, the ability for people to allocate dollars uh, in certain areas voluntarily, it's just a revealing uh, the, the inequality. And of course, the great point that Hans Hoppe makes is that let's say we become a much more uh, politicized society. Well, it's not like everyone is equally talented in being a politician and getting people to vote for certain things. You what you do is you use things like rhetoric and uh, ideas to mobilize people. Some are better than others. I'm not as good as Bernie Sanders. I wish I were. Or Elizabeth Warren or Mitch McConnell. Those, uh, again, we see in almost every area, it's like 0.01% getting 99% of the attention. How many Congress uh, people are as well known as AOC? 
She's like one of the most powerful people on uh, on planet Earth. On, in like any organization, you have this sort of iron law of oligarchy in the NBA. It's like LeBron James and Dwayne Wade at the time when I was into basketball. Like 89% of the jerseys were like three guys, even though mm -hmm. the, the NBA has a ton of people. But what percentage of singers are, you know, was uh, uh, successful as Eminem or 50 Cent or Dave Matthews? Well, 0.0001%. So we see this inequality everywhere. To blame it on capitalism is a blatant lie. And, and and I'm just trying to flip that around on its head and say, look, some of this inequality that you're saying capitalism reveals is is a really good thing. There's a lot of utility in it. Elon Musk recently uh, made a very big splash by saying that you you want the people that are best at capital allocation to have the capital to allocate. And you want the people that are terrible at it, government, to have less of it. And so it doesn't make any sense to remove capital from the people that have proven themselves to be good at it have less uh, resources to use towards those good competent ends. So it's, it's it, yeah. Exactly. And Hayek's point in the Constitution of Liberty, gosh, I wish I, uh, I got to find this quote because it's something to the extent of inequality allows for there to be this charitable investment on behalf of the self, uh, of those self-seeking uh, of those seeking their own self-interest. So when the, when phones first come out, it's not like the rich people got together and said, we need to make this available for the masses. So we're going to buy the first cell phones and then we're going to distribute them to everyone. They wanted them. So they purchased them with that money. Some companies got income, which they use to reinvest in a product or service in hopes of getting more customers and getting more money by making it available to more people. So it's almost like if you were just watching this from a distance, it would almost look like there's a bunch of rich people who donate so a lot of poor people can have stuff. Because in the early stages, it's so expensive. Research and development, it's all there. Um, uh, the, it, it costs so much to get something. It, it's, it's like a billion dollars to make the first pill, but then every pill after that is like two cents. Because it's just finding that formula. It's getting access to that information of how to efficiently allocate resources. I mean, whatever is used in this printer, the resources have always been there. But it's someone since yeah. the Big Bang. But someone structured them in such a way. And once they found out, then it became uh, something that uh, the masses needed. But in the meantime, there's people who are working on this com uh, printer and thinking about it. And they got to get paid. They have bills as well. So uh, th this amount of inequality is actually even beneficial. There's still a utilitarian benefit to it, which uh, is always underappreciated. And, and to belabor it even more, let it cannot be overstated how few people can do those things. How few people can assemble matter into the form of a printer for the first time. Almost no one can do that. You, so you don't want to go around robbing from everyone to give to the, the least competent, let's say, or eh, maybe that's a little overstating it, but you don't want to reduce the resources from the people that are productive because it's the productive people that have the rare capacities to make these things, these products, these services that improve everyone's life. It's like the way to improve everyone's life is to let capital go to where it is most productive rather than to strip it from those people and just give free welfare paychecks to everybody. The author then goes into the questions for free market moralists 
Question number one. Is there any exchange between two people in the absence of direct physical compulsion by one party against another or the threat thereof necessarily free? If you say yes, then you think that people can never be coerced into actions by circumstances that do not involve the direct physical compulsion of another. She used the example of uh, someone stealing bread to stay alive, someone engaging in prostitution when they're desperately poor, or someone selling their organs. Patrick. Is any exchange between two people in the absence of direct physical compulsion by one party against another or the threat thereof necessarily free? Uh, yes. I mean, of course, it depends on how we define freedom and free. But, um, I mean, certainly using my definition, yes. Uh, I define free as the absence of threat or coercion by people. So, yeah, that's free. Look, none of us are free from the enslavement to reality and the state of nature, but you can't even, I, I hate even saying it that way because you can't properly call reality slavery because reality is what is. It's not like an actor that goes around owning people and enslaving them, but existence being shitty doesn't justify you enslaving everyone around you. Like that's the argument that's happening here. Like we are all stuck in this existence. This existence includes suffering. And it requires constant resistive effort to continue existing. That is what is. I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm not, it's not my fault. That's just what is. So is the mother in this example free? It depends on your definition of the word. Free from enslavement, Rawls argues for. Free from the enslavement that Rawls argues for, or free to act as she pleases, to use her resources and time alive, whatever way she decides, I would say yes to the second one. She's free to do as she pleases to use her resources and time alive in whatever way she decides. She's free from the struggles inherent to existence. No, no one is. We all deal with that. That's everyone's burden to bear. If we want to continue surviving. Uh, I guess that's my first comment. And of course the, it, it the power lies in the follow-up. So you could look at someone in this terrible, vulnerable situation and say, is this or is this what we're talking about when we say freedom? Is this really the good life? And you might say, no. So you want a system where they have uh, the most options and the most uh, likelihood of upward mobility, a free market. So what they end up doing is let's take the rather uh, you know vile example, but the reality is uh, selling your organs or compensating people for their generosity of, uh, of organ allocation. So here we have situation one, which is, I can't pronounce her last name, Cervasian, Cervansen. Oh, I'm pretty sure it's um, uh, in Indian, Srinivasan. Srinivasan, okay. So in, the, in example one, we have uh, Jack and Jill, Jill wants money. Jack needs a kidney. And because we live under the Rawlsian regime, people cannot be exploited and cannot sell their organs. So Jill dies and Jack doesn't get the money or vice versa. I forget who I assigned to, to, to which. Um, in the second scenario, you have the person who wants the money getting the money. You have the person who needs the organ getting the organ. If you have someone making a decision, whether it's working in a sweatshop, terrible, I'm sorry, but that's how South Korea went from poverty to wealth 
is because they had sweatshops just like America, and there was no large-scale uh, foreign interference with uh, with that. But had we said, we need to put South Korea on welfare, well, then that would not have gotten them <laughs> as wealthy as they are today. So in this sense, it's not only more efficient of allocating kidneys to people who need kidneys and money to people who want money. You're looking at a decision that a poor person's making. Bad job, prostitution, selling organs, uh, living in a terrible slum. Let's say you're looking at their their choice, their best option, and you're taking that away. That does not make you a good person. That doesn't make you hip or cool or progressive or friendly. You are saying, hey, person who is in a vulnerable situation, I'm going to make it worse by not letting you do the one thing that you think is best for you. So um, it's uneconomic and uh, and it's immoral. Final thoughts on uh, the, the concept of positive freedom. Uh, yeah, the, the final thing I would say is just to point out in her example that she's sort of philosophizing in midstream. She's talking about this woman uh, whose children are starving. You know, what got her there? And why is the reasons that got her to that terrible position anybody else's problem? Um, in terms of force now, granted, look, you and I are both actually involved in voluntary virtue, a 501 C three principled Liberty nonprofit organization to help people. So it's not like we don't care about people that are in bad, in bad ways. Right. But we're not talking about voluntary help. We're talking about pointing guns at people to extract resources, to forcibly help people. That's what we're talking about here. And you can't make other people's mistakes or accidents or whatever my problem at the point of a gun yeah i'm trying to remember the example that larkin uses in the most dangerous superstition i think he says uh, let's sort of get the modern world out of the way to understand this positive right to say a house if patrick and i are hanging out and there's no one around we're just on an island what would it mean for us to have a right to a house well, if a house only comes into existence as a cause result of people performing labor and I'm entitled to it, well, then I'm violating your rights because you don't build me a house and I'm violating your rights because I'm not building you a house. So in this moment, by us just hanging out, we're both pure evil because we're both yes. making each other. We're both making each other homeless. And then we're not serving uh, each other all the time. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And then second. So, so it can't be, you know, uh, applied uh, c consistently. But uh, on top of it, it literally means that people own the bodies of other people, which is worse mm. than prostitution, worse than choosing to sell your organs. It's a lot more akin to stealing organs. If I own your body, well, then if I have a positive right to live, that means everyone with two org uh, with two kidneys and two lungs is stealing life from people with one uh, no kidneys or they have kidney failure or uh, people who have their lungs removed from smoking. So uh, uh, again, God, I wish I could remember that one because just because Larkin says it so beautifully. He has, a, he has a knack for saying things beautifully. Question number two, is any free non-physically compelled exchange morally permissible? If you say yes, then you think that any free exchange can't be be exploitative and thus immoral before reading the rest of this is this not hmm. a bait and switch it is any free exchange morally permissible you think that it i think, can't I think the emphasis is on any i think it's is any free exchange morally permissible that's how i read it because can't you still believe in exploitation like you could still 
believe in something as dumb as the labor theory of value and say it's immoral for the man to work and the woman to stay home and spend the husband's money. She's exploiting him. You could still <laughs> yeah. think that's exploitative without thinking it's a violation of someone's rights. Like, like can't you still think like uh, that some guy is, you know, uh, uh, um, not very loyal to his girlfriend if he cheats on her? You could still think he's being exploitative without thinking, therefore, the state should monopolize arranging marriages. Is that not a bait and switch? Or an equivocation, rather? It is definitely an equivocation. And it's also, it, there's this, like, I, I don't know, the word exploit has taken on this negative connotation. It just means to, like, fully utilize a resource, which is a good thing. You want resources fully utilized. What people really mean when they say exploit is, like, take advantage of. Like, oh, that, that was a poor person in a bad place and they had no choice and um, so you got their labor at a really low rate. That's what they mean. Like you're, you're taking advantage of somebody's bad situation and, and that's a bad thing. You shouldn't take advantage of people. You should pay people more than you have to because reasons. <laughs> I, I'm just realizing that the authors of this book, modern ethics in 77 arguments, they just wanted my money. I, they've never called me to see how I'm doing since I bought the book. They just want my freaking money. They, that's uh, my labor. They're uh, just wanting my labor. They oh, just exploited you. OMG. OMG. Oh, well, you should write a letter. Suppose <laughs> that, and exploit my labor further. The, writing mm, a letter mm. takes time. Enough is Send enough. Send them a bill for the letter, for the exploitation. <laughs> that, that'd be nice at sending them an invoice. Suppose that I inherited from my rich parents a large plot of vacant land and that you are my poor, landless neighbor. I Hold offer on. you the following deal. How are you a <laughs> landless neighbor? <laughs> if you're landless, you're not a neighbor. You're just somebody walking around. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. Please continue. <laughs> I offer you the following deal. You can work the land doing all the hard labor of tiling, Sowing, irrigation, and harvesting. I'll pay you $1 a day for a year. After that, I'll sell the crop for $50,000. You decide this is your best available option. And so take the deal since you consent to this exchange. Is it morally permissible? <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like, did you read what you wrote, lady? Like, you decide this is your best available option, and so you take the deal. So if this lady thinks it's morally impermissible to make that deal, then you are necessarily saying that he has to take some other option that he found to be less good. What are you doing? <laughs> you obnoxious, obnoxious miscreant. She, see, she asks, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, see, it, it's important that we listen to people behind a veil of ignorance. Oh. Uh, as, as far as listening I, to them in the real world and what they choose to do. Screw them. Screw them. Yeah, Get yeah, yeah. behind that veil of ignorance. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. I, mm. I have much more leeway when I'm uh, not talking about anything in reality. She asks specifically about moral permissibility. And people are going to answer what is moral based on the philosophy of ethics that they personally adhere to. And there's a million of them, as we know. Um, according to like anti-subjectivism, which is what I is the philosophy I'm attempting to develop, as well as like a lot of libertarianisms, uh, just general philosophies to declare an action immoral 
is to say that force may be used against the person taking that action that you've deemed immoral or evil. In this case, to interfere in a voluntary exchange between two people would be to be the one bringing the force to bear in the situation. You would be starting a fight that didn't exist before you walked in. Again, this is just like what we talked about already. Before the employment, and this is this is insanity, before the employment offer was made, the landowner had no obligation, according to her and Rawlsianism, before the employment offer was made, the landowner had no obligation to his neighbor at all. The burden of proof would be on Rawls to substantiate it, which he didn't attempt to by ignoring Hume's law, but let's, let's set that aside for a second. But suddenly, the moment after an offer was made, an offer that could have been rejected and wasn't, the landowner becomes an immoral villain deserving of like some kind of controlling force. So like before he just made an offer that could have been rejected, he was totally fine and free of any moral obligation. And merely by offering, hey, you want a buck? You, you know, if you come do this stuff for an absurdly low amount of money, does that sound good to you? You want to do it? Just by saying those words, he's a villain now. It's just, do they hear themselves? Well, and she, she must support outlawing universities because universities, uh, I uh, didn't get paid a dollar for going. And I put, you know, a year and a half of work before I got kicked out of all three. Uh, you can work for four years for zero dollars an hour at best. A lot of people pay thousands of dollars for the privilege to work. So that's what we don't even have to use this hypothetical. We have real world examples, internships. That's a lot of times that people do it. Now, why on God's earth would someone just work for free? She must look at this and say, you idiots, you're just not doing anything. Well, it's called a, a time investment or uh, intellectual capital investment to increase the amount of skills you have to make yourself more valuable. Hey, uh, I'm going to go to different farms because they're going to see that I really – uh, worked hard at this other place. I'm going to develop more skills so I can be better in uh, in the long run. And there's other people that are going to be bidding against her. What is she? I'm, I sell the crop for $50,000. Well, there's going to be other employers who might want to pay me more if there's a $1 to $50,000 ratio. <laughs> there's going to be other people <laughs> who, who are going to be attracted. You might want to pay $2. <laughs> I've doubled my income. Oh, and I thought only the 1% got increases in income. Oh, heavens. Yeah. Um, you decide this is the best available option. And it's we. she just doesn't differentiate between that which is wrong and that which should be outlawed. I mean, guys who you know cheat on their girlfriends and wives, you know, totally horrible, uh, assuming you have a agreed upon you know monogamous relationship, just absolutely terrible nothing to uh be uh, proud of there but to assume that therefore they should be outlawed and we need a relationship regulatory uh regime to stop such things from happening is is an absolute uh, non sequitur also when he's done you know he might have taken that deal because afterwards he's going to be experienced in tilling sowing irrigation and harvesting <laughs> which he could probably charge a hell of a lot more than a dollar for the next year you know I make more than a dollar a day uh, every year, and I'm not good in any of those. So this this <laughs> this guy's going to be rolling in it pretty soon. Well, I mean, Western that goes to internships, right? And uh, oh, what's the word, you know, from like medieval times? I can't. I'm I'm blanking on it. But like apprenticeship, like an apprenticeship, like you're not getting paid, 
but you're learning and you're building skills that are going to be valuable to you later. Exactly. It, that on the job experience. I mean, employers uh, lo- love to look for it. Question number three, are people entitled to all they are able and not only what they are able to get through free exchange? So it's all or just some of what are they entitled to? If you say yes, you think that what people are entitled to is largely a matter of luck. Let's deal let's deal with it right there before going any further. Are people entitled to all they are able and not only what they are able to get through free exchange? It's a matter of luck. I, I, again, the entitled work, uh, the entitled word re uh, classifies this discussion in the burden of proof moves. Like, no, no, I don't have to justify owning something. You have to justify using force against me to remove it from me. So on its face, like it doesn't even deserve a response. This is so backwards. It presumes that we all have to justify everything that we own to, you know, some collective or to some veil of rational people. Like (laughs) it's just that that's, uh, absurd. Um, then the luck thing I, I want to hold my comments on because she does say some more things that pertain to it. But yeah, so I guess that's it for me. Would you mind reading until uh, the point where uh, you, you wanted to comment? Um, yeah, I'll read a little bit further. So, uh, so she says, if you say yes, you think that what people are entitled to is largely a matter of luck. Why? First, because only a tiny minority of the population is lucky enough to inherit wealth from their parents. Um, some shots at Mitt Romney. Since giving money to your kids is just another example of free exchange, the accumulation of wealth and privilege, injecting a term she didn't substantiate with privilege, the accumulation of wealth in the hands of the few is morally permissible. Second, people's capacities to produce goods and services in demand on the market is largely a function of the lottery of their birth, their genetic predispositions, their parents' education, the amount of race and sex-based discrimination to which they're subjected, and their access to healthcare and good education. So this is kind of like the luck logic loop. Um, and I think a lot of it is is factual, It, but it goes to erode the, the foundation that Rawlsianism is based on, that um, that the, the inequalities of the free market are based on free exchange rather than the realities of inequality in the world that we kind of started talking about. People are born different. People are born with different parenting, different education, different genetic predispositions, different IQs. Like all of these things will determine how successful you are in life. IQ being, I think, the single number one largest predictor of life success. Like just general life success. If you if you boil it down into a metric, IQ is more strongly correlated to it than any other metric. That is, um, depending on who you believe, 60-40 Uh, nature nurture. So 60, 40 of that 60% or 40%, depending on which side of that argument you land on is totally like luck. Like you're just born with the genes that you're born into. Uh, And the other part of it is nurture either 60 or 40, depending on which side of it you fall on. But this, this, this totally discounts the parents' responsibility to their kids as well. Like part of the reason why we want to do such a good job in our life to build up a, a piggy bank and then to later on raise our kids in um, successful, non-abusive ways is to give them that advantage that other people, other parents chose through ignorance or inaction or maleficence to not give their kids. So it's almost like, again, the whole theme here is this moral hazard is the economic word for it. The moral hazard, which is where you take the problems that other people create 
and you make the people that didn't create them the ones that have to pay for it. And that's this whole thing in a nutshell. It's parenting is not luck. Parenting is work and decision. Whether or not you make them or not, the way you parent and the way you raise kids has a massive effect on the rest of their life. Um, now, from the kid's perspective, obviously, which family you get born to, I guess you could consider luck because you can't control it, right? But, um, yeah, I guess, so I guess that's what I had to say. There, there's, there's definitely randomness there. There's definitely luck-based inequality there. It's just part of reality, yes. Um, but, again, reality doesn't justify you forcing people to do things the way you want them to do. And it doesn't justify you pointing guns at them to level inequalities that you decide exist because you're the rational ones. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason again, no citation when it comes to, she, she uses Mitt Romney because even the right is not passionate about defending Mitt Romney, e even the Republicans. So, uh, because, uh, it, it's easy to use, you know, a poster face, uh, when dealing with an idea, but the reason she didn't cite uh, a statistic on intergenerational wealth, as it's called, is because uh, about 80% of millionaires are first generation. A lot of people currently in the 1% now will not be in the 1% 10, 20, 30 years from now. A lot of people in the bottom 20% will gain skills in the future and will be in the upper 10% of income. So they have to reject all mobility and act like you're sort of just this ultimate victim of circumstance. Also, when it comes to the luck portion of things, you just happen to be born in a place that happened to value uh, investing and Warren Buffett happened to get a job and happened to get hired by an employer that happened to like him compared to all the other people. Yeah, that is definitely an aspect of life that uh, the, the, that exists, but it's not like he would have been investing if he was in the year 100 AD. What people do is they look around the market prices incentivize where people should allocate their efforts if they want to make more money or just do whatever they want with their lives. Again, they don't apply it to politicians. It's like saying, you know, politicians, you don't have to follow their laws or their edicts. I mean, this guy, Mark Kelly in Arizona, just happened to get a job as a senator in a place that he happened to be running a campaign in, where he happened to be running against the dumbest person on the planet, Martha McSally. Um, government just happened to win a war uh, in the American Revolution, and they happened to give birth to kids that ended up uh, serving in this regime that I happened to live under at this time. So, again, all this happenstance and luck, it also applies to her solution of politics. So, I mean, she, she's really cool at stepping on this rake, but you don't see part two where it hits her in the face and makes her look like a moron every time. <laughs> Imagine the gall that you'd have to have to just decide you get a say in what somebody else, somebody else wants to do with their property. Like, and then imagine designing like a faux philosophy to justify your desire to have some moral upper hand over the rights of other equal creatures. Like, it's like if you become successful enough, you become a lower level creature, a lower tier creature that doesn't deserve to have their property respected as much. I, Nature I, 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 and, and, and yeah. Go ahead. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, I was I was just gonna say I I'm still failing to see what's wrong with giving your kids an inheritance. Of course, you can see the sort of Hunter Biden uh, kind of lifestyle of these sort of aristocrats that have a lot of wealth. They give their kids 
um, you know, this fake life where they're constantly seeking meaning. So they're more likely to develop drug habits and everything. But but she's bashing the concept of an inheritance, the idea of making the world a better place for your kids. She, she doesn't even get into and this therefore stops them from being as productive as they would or living a completely fulfilled life. It's just like this envious you got it without working. Okay, well, you got this book deal, and I never got one, uh, so so that's also unfair. The goal is to recognize unfairness always exists, so which system should we embrace so we can give most people the most amount of mobility? And by every metric, it's it, it's a free market. And, and again, this entitlement thing comes back up. It's like shifting the burden. Nature provides us no entitlements whatsoever. If you want to live and work with other people who want to elevate themselves out of that world of the beasts, you can make agreements with the people around you to not attack each other and to respect their property in return for them respecting your property. And you could, if you wanted, get together with a bunch of Ralsians who all agree to voluntarily give resources to people in their attempt to undo the randomness built into reality, the luck part. But what is invalid and what I find despicable is to use this baseless pseudo philosophy to justify violently taking things from others, a way to get away with taking the actions that those beasts you're trying to get away from take while attempting to like wear the robes of moral virtue. Like you want to look like the, the philosopher King while still acting like a beast. It's disgusting. And I did in preparation, I wrote down, um, some excerpts, certain paragraphs from um, Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged. This is part of um, uh, a little rant that one of her characters went on. If, you know, with your per uh, permission, I can read it, but it's on money. And I think it applies uh, quite a bit to uh, the discussion here. Is that cool? Yes, please. All right. Give me a moment here. It's, it's, just, it's a few paragraphs, but it's, it's pretty good, I think. Have you ever asked what, so this is Francisco de Anconia from Atlas Shrugged and he's at a ball and he's talking to a bunch of people that are poo-pooing people that have earned a lot of money and that are wealthy. And he says, have you ever asked what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange, which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or of the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? When you accept money in payment for your effort, you do so only on the conviction that you will exchange it for the product of the effort of others. It is not the moochers or the looters who give value to the money. Not an ocean of tears, not all the guns in the world can transform those pieces of paper in your wallet into the bread you will need to survive tomorrow. Those pieces of paper, which should have been gold, are, taken, are, are a token of honor. Your claim upon the energy of men who produce your wallet is your statement of hope that somewhere in the world around you, there are men who will not default on that moral principle, which is the root of money. Is this what you consider evil? I'm not going to read the whole thing. I only have a couple more paragraphs. Have you ever looked for the root of production? Take a look at an electric generator. And this goes to your printer point earlier. Take a look at an electric generator and dare tell yourself that it was created by the muscular effort of unthinking brutes. 
Try to grow a seed of wheat without the knowledge left to you by men who had to discover it for the first time. Try to obtain your food by means of nothing but physical motions, and you'll learn that a man's mind is the root of all the goods produced and of all the wealth that has ever existed on earth. To trade by means of money is the code of the men of goodwill. Money rests on the axiom that every man is the owner of his mind and his effort. Money allows no power to prescribe the value of your effort except the voluntary choice of the man who is willing to trade you his effort in return. Uh, and I'll skip forward a little bit for brevity's sake. Only the man who does not need it is fit to inherit wealth. The man who would make his own fortune no matter where he started. If an heir is equal to his money, it serves him. If not, it destroys him. But you look on and you cry that money corrupted him. Did it? Or did he corrupt his money? Do not envy a worthless heir. His wealth is not yours, and you would have done no better with it. Do not think that it should have been distributed among you, loading the world with 50 parasites instead of one. Would not bring back the dead virtue which was the fortune. Money is a living power that dies without its root. Money will not serve the mind that cannot match it. It is the reason why, is this the reason why you call it evil? Let me give you a tip on a clue to men's characters. The man who damns money has obtained it dishonorably. The man who respects it has earned it, earned it. Run for your, run from your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. So thank you for indulging me that quote. It's one of my favorite parts of that entire book. That That's a great one. And you can use Rand, of course, as the ultimate example of not only not inheriting wealth, her father's uh, pharmaceutical business, I believe, was collectivized and uh, stolen by mm. the Bolshevik regime, comes to America, hardly speaks English, works um, what would be called an exploitative job in Hollywood as a writer, learns English and writes two of the greatest best-selling books of all time in her second language. So this should be like the ultimate feminist icon, but yes. uh, they, they just can't, they just can't, uh, you know, give any credence to someone advocating uh, voluntary exchange, much as uh, they love the freedom of exchange for uh, gays to get married, something vitally important that they have the right to associate with. Extending that to the second that gay person wants to make an economic exchange, well, then the walls come up. Well, then the regulations start to you fill out this form. You got to fill out that. No, no, that that's in that line, not this line. You got to go over there now. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. G great, great passage. Um, and just and just a shameless plug. I recorded that entire section. That was a small excerpt, but I, I recorded that entire speech on my channel. Um, the video is called Money is the Root of All Virtue. And uh, I, I read the whole thing and man, it, it's just really good. Oh yeah, Rand. Uh, Rand is great. Have you read um, the Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal? Yes, absolutely. Oh, on my channel, no. But I mean, I've read them, but I haven't performed them. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, but, well, the the one that I read on my channel, just because it was such a red pill at the time, is the very final chapter of the Virtue of Selfishness, called the Argument from Intimidation, where it's anyone's use of disapproval. Uh, as a means of forestalling a debate, she calls it an intellectual drive-by. Oh, you, 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 you can't really <laughs> believe that 
do you? You, you don't actually believe in an unfettered free market. You, you can't be serious. Anything showing disapproval. The second I heard that, I go, I feel like I hear that often. I have not stopped hearing it until she pointed it out to me. So, gosh, Rand is so good on on so many issues. And that's a lot of what this article is by this lady. Like, she doesn't make any <laughs> counter arguments here. She just disdainfully says they're not common sense. Yeah, you're not going to be hanging, sitting at the table of rational kids behind a veil <laughs> of ignorance. You are just so uncool with your unfetteredness. Yeah. yeah. Um, as she engages in unfettered authorism. We never voted on what this woman's allowed to publish. She just selfishly published whatever she wanted and then exploited and my barbarism. labor. Like, <laughs> I, I know, let's, I not, let's not understate the disgustingness of her position. She's advocating barbarism uh, in, in search of absurd ends. Sorry. No, thanks. You're, you're not as rational as you think, lady. Question number four. Are people under no obligation to do anything they don't freely want to do or freely commit themselves to doing? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, I hate to say it. And, and so, so the, the, the example would be, I see you're about to fall. Uh, you're walking and you're about to fall off um, the, the, this little ledge. Uh, should I be enslaved into saying, hey, watch out, there's a ledge there. Well, th there's a significant difference that, of course, she doesn't care to uh, differentiate. Does, does someone have a moral obligation to do so and whether or not they should be caged if they don't do so and whether there should be a regime going around enforcing whether or not uh, my actions uh, were a, met the uh, legal criteria for doing enough to help uh, so, to help someone out? Are people under no obligation? Again, not d differentiating. If you say yes, then you think the only moral requirements no, no, I don't think only requirements are the ones we freely bring on ourselves, say by making promises or contracts. Oh, there's another five-hour Kinsella debate, our, our <laughs> promises, contracts. Suppose, <laughs> suppose I'm walking to the library and see a man drowning in the river. I decide that the pleasure I would get from saving his life wouldn't exceed the cost of getting wet and the delay. So I walk on by. Since I made no contract with this man, I am no under no obligation to save him. Thoughts on question number four? Uh, it's very similar to number two when we were talking about moral hazards and the and exporting the externalities, the the consequences of your behavior to other people in 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 the form of positive moral obligations that you could potentially attack or cage people over not fulfilling on, um, and. I think some people would say, oh, no, no, that's like too extreme of an interpretation of this section. No, it's not. She's trying to take your answer to this and justify the state forcing people to help people through the form of welfare and taxation and blah, 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 by pointing guns at people to make them do things. So I'm not, that's not an equivocation. She's making that argument. She's founding her argument on your answer to this question not being, yeah. So when I say it was similar to number two, I, I, it reminded me of a story. I was having a debate with a commie um, and we were really having trouble determining what like the, what constituted an aggression and what constituted uh, something that you could attack somebody over uh, in, in self-defense. And I remember I gave him this analogy. <clears throat> he was stuck on a remote island by himself, starving to death. 
about to die of exposure. And there was a boat captain that was out on the ocean, sailing somewhere, delivering goods, doesn't matter. And uh, before the boat, and I asked him, before the boat captain knew that you were there stranded on that island, was he a bad guy? Was he, could you attack him? Uh, was he culpable for any crimes? And he said, no. And I said, okay, now the boat continues on its path and it just so happens to pass by your island and he sees you over on the island calling for help and he doesn't. Now, can you attack him? Because he chose to continue on his way. And is, and he said, yeah, he's being exploitative. He's using his means of production in a way that hurts me. Uh, and so he went, he literally just by looking at you on the island went from, again, this is like we talked about in number two. He just, just by making some little thing, like a gesture of simply gazing at an island with a guy on it calling for help, went from a normal guy you couldn't attack to a villain you could to force him to enslave him to your to your needs. Your needs determine what he has to do. And it's taking, it, it's, it's that uh, moral hazard. If other people's actions, whatever put him on that island, whatever inaction, whatever accident, willful, negligent, whatever that people take, they create positive moral obligations on other people, even on everyone around them, which is an even more accurate and extreme situation. Like we're not just saying it creates a positive obligation on you. It's everybody, everybody around is positively morally obligated to help you on the island. Then you have the worst possible moral hazard. And for people that don't haven't heard that term before, because it's a more formal term, especially in economics, moral hazard is specifically that when the people bearing the cost of a decision aren't the ones making the decision. Bad things happen almost every time. People, so in her example, talking about some a, a dude drowning in a river and people walking by. If you morally, on pain of force, force everybody walking near rivers to rescue people, otherwise they'll get in trouble by force or something bad will happen to them forcibly, non-consensually, then you're going to have a moral hazard situation. You're going to have the people making the decision to play near rivers, let's say, or, you know, run around or work near rivers or whatever. You're going to have them less worried about their safety than they would be if they didn't know that everyone around them was going to be forced to try and help them. Also, there's going to be less people near the river because if there's a chance when you're walking by a river, you're going to be forced at gunpoint to help some asshole that fell in you're probably going to walk not near the river the next day. And so there's going to be less people around to help the guy that falls into the river. So there's all sorts of like negative results that come from, not from people helping people to fall in rivers, but from pointing guns at people to force them to. It's all sorts of bad things come out of the force involved. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the go, boat go example, yeah. the, the boat example is, is a good one, but you can sort of look at uh, the, Someone decides to do nothing. They're just watching TV. Well, that's not being exploitative. In fact, you might be a member of the proletariat and uh, the, in my war against the bourgeoisie, so you're an ally. But if that person now invests, comes up with an idea, and offers you a job, product, or service, now he's an evil exploiter. People who produce nothing, good. People who produce something voluntarily, pure evil, who need uh, bricks thrown into their businesses, and uh, so, so we could justify more uh, more state spending and call it mothers just uh, stealing uh, baby formula. So uh, again, this is why the commies starve because they hate the producers 
and they constantly are worshiping the parasites. And the parasites could be your local thief or, more accurately, your politicians who are bailing out companies who are just as parasitic as uh, as any other thief, creating uh, zombie companies that should have died some time ago and gone under new management, which we're now dealing with a less efficient economy than we otherwise would if they had been allowed to fail. That is the biggest example of moral hazard. We're going to bail you out no no matter what. I, I think I remember the, the earliest version of moral hazard that I heard was it actually like turned people immoral by taking out fire insurance on a place mm. that they end up being the arson of. Mm-hmm. So it actually changes the character of a person and a country when we say you're no longer responsible for your actions. Well, that would be kind of cool. If like no matter what I did, I just ha- got a blank check. I never got to jail. M- my bank account always had money in it. But the fallacy of composition is just because I would benefit from doing something doesn't mean everyone would benefit by doing the same thing. If I stand up at the concert, I could see better. If everyone stands up, not everyone can see better. Um, if I'm talking loud at the restaurant, people can hear me better. If everyone's talking louder, again, uh, the, uh, the the same thing applies. So uh, they, they it's almost like they totally rely on uh, uh, on these uh, isolated incidents to make their case without uh, w- w- without any nuance. And of course, we're the ones who are always called dumb and utopian who just sort of live in a fantasy world. Meanwhile, uh, the, her world consists of uh, people drowning everywhere and no one wanting to stop by. By the way, these people should be allowed to vote, I'm guessing. People who just want other, <laughs> others to die. Uh, everyone is Mitt Romney inheriting wealth. Uh, everyone else is selling one acre of land for $50,000 every year, paying people a dollar an hour. Uh, and everyone else is selling their organs because there's no uh, income m- mobility. Uh, except for Wilt Chamberlain, I guess. The, the, this is the fantasy world that we get accused of living in. Another another moral hazard example is uh, eating in a restaurant and choking and somebody helping the person that was choking by trying to do like Heimlich maneuver or something. And, you know, let's say they crack a rib in the process of doing Heimlich and then the state will allow somebody to sort of sue or prosecute that person. Uh, it creates this moral hazard situation where like when somebody's choking, people no longer want to help because it's a risk to their own safety and livelihood from the threat of the state, like, uh, justice quote, justice system, um, you know, making this other person's choking problem, their financial problem. Their moral hazard is, is a huge concept to get. And you'll find, you'll see it everywhere. Now that you've heard it and understand it, like everything the government does has some moral hazard involved to some degree. The people paying for the things are not the people making the decisions. It's almost like the state in two words, moral hazard. (laughs) Author goes on that that was uh, the the final question. Most of us, I suspect, will find it difficult to say yes to all four of these questions. Like the idiot who says, I don't know anyone who voted for Nixon. (laughs) Well, you live in a bubble, moron. Of course you find it hard. Even knows it. Well, let me speak to that. Let me me, me just say something real quick. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's totally believable that most all of us would say yes, because Rawlsianism is the premier moral philosophy on college campuses. It is ubiquitous. It is the primary moral philosophy taught in colleges today. And honestly, it's been the prime one in effect in the world for the last 30 years or more. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure 
that she's surrounded by people that would definitely agree with her. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and you know, I took a poll the other day, and did you know that like 100% of people are Muslim? Uh, I also took it outside of a mosque. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that has anything to do. That that might have thrown off. No, I think most people are Muslim now, now that I think about it. Checkmate evidence. Even even knows like this is uh, th- this was this such a great one that Hans Hoppe points out. He goes, you know, sometimes uh, there's a lot of people in our tradition who are very well-meaning, who just haven't been introduced to the right stuff. Nozick, writing 50 years ago at Harvard, never got to stand on the shoulders of Hans Hoppe, Milton Friedman, mm. and Murray Rothbard like I am. But what they'll do is they'll use this trick of even Robert Nozick admits, even Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek admit we need some welfare. What you can sometimes what sometimes happens is they're used as useful idiot punching bags uh, for mm-hmm. people to justify. In Anarchy State and Utopia, found it hard to say yes to question three. Question three being are people entitled to all they are able to get through free exchange. In philosophical terms, we have a reductio ad absurdum. <laughs> the queen of reductio ad absurdums <laughs> accuses Harvard PhD <sighs> philosopher Robert Nozick of using it. The Nozickian view implies that from the perspective of common sense morality is absurd. What a desperate person who sells her organs or body does so freely that it's permissible to pay someone a paltry sum while profiting hugely off their labor, that people are entitled to get rich because of accidents of birth, that you're within your rights to walk by a drowning man. I feel it's my job to constantly never miss it, but to point out that her argument is that it is absurd. That is the start and end of her argument, which, of course, is not an argument. It's just her opinion. She's asserting that it's absurd. It's not worth a response almost. Sorry, go ahead. I just, I just, I, I hate it when people like they, they, they take in these bodies of work that are filled with judgments and assertions. Like it's absurd. That's bullshit. Um, was one that I did recently in a 14 hour live stream that came up repeatedly. That's bullshit. Okay. That's not an argument. That's an assertion. It's absurd. That's a, that's not an argument. That's an assertion. Like you, you gotta be careful when you're reading this stuff that you don't fall into thinking she's making an argument here. She's giving you her opinion. Uh, okay, rant over. Please, please continue. Yeah, and uh, I guess, you know, in Saudi Arabia, it's absurd that women would be able to have a job writing and publishing books in, you know, large scale uh, uh, prints. So what if it's if it's absurd? Maybe now it is no, uh, no, no slavery that that's absurd. Uh, I'm yeah. get I'm using a reductio ad absurdum there, but you yep. get, you have to know that that that's not enough. And this is a woman whose examples are Mitt Romney drowning children, um, Wilt Chamberlain and uh, prostitutes selling organs, uh, as if like you run into those like five times a day when you're just talking to your friends. No, those are the absurd uh, situations in reality that you hardly ever uh, come across. But uh, even when you do, it doesn't justify the state. So it's always this lingering problems exist, don't they? Yeah. And therefore, uh, the the Koch brothers have the right to rule everyone because these problems exist. How does that make it go away? How does there being a state that makes us less wealthy stop the starving woman uh, who needs uh, access to resources? Just like there's a shortage of uh, property protection in places where there's a lot of police. Uh, Who knows that the state would be providing all the things that they promise, protect and serve, I guess that I guess government restaurants are just going to be named uh, tons of food place 
And even if they don't provide any food, there'll still be a right to food, just like there's a right to protection and a right to education, even though they don't provide those either. And, and I'm jumping the gun here a little bit. Can I read the rest of this paragraph? Because Please. this paragraph is quintessential ad populum in a fi- in like 500 words. Okay. Like, let me read the rest and then I'll summarize. So it says the Nozickian view implies what from the perspective of common sense morality is absurd that a desperate person who sells her organs or body does so freely that it's permissible to pay someone a paltry sum while profiting hugely off their labor, that people are entitled to get rich because of accidents of birth, that you're within your rights to walk by a drowning man. Thus, Nozick's view must be wrong. Justice is not simply the unfettered exercise of the free market. Free market morality isn't anything of the sort. This is ad populum. Let me summarize each section of this paragraph. She says, most of us agree. Most of us agree the Nozickian view is absurd. Thus, Nozick must be wrong. Justice is not this. Free market morality isn't anything of the sort. That was her argument, folks. Most of us agree Nozick is wrong. It's absurd because he's absurd. That was the paragraph. (laughs) Most of us agree it's absurd. Thus, he's wrong. She even used the word thus, which is like a therefore and a logical proof. Like this, 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 therefore this. Most of us agree Nozick is absurd or Nozick's idea is absurd. Therefore, he's wrong. This stuff really annoys me, Keith. Like, (laughs) as you probably know, (laughs) it just bothers me when people pass this shit off as philosophy. She continues, some might object that these are extreme cases and that all they show is that the market, to be fully moral, needs some tweaking uh, as if it's like a, the, a neutral tool that would need some tweaking, as if these this so-called tweaking doesn't involve killing people who dissent or caging yeah. them and taking them from their families, putting their wives in a situation where they might need to sell their organs to live. That's what you mm-hmm. want. That's uh, what she calls tweaking, yeah, which is, that, of course, that's just tweaking. like a gross understatement. Like tweaking would be what you could actually do in a free market situation, which is where if you found out some asshole walked by a drowning guy in a river, you would make sure everybody knew that this guy, what this guy did and that he's an asshole. And you would probably make him very unpopular and maybe even lose business or lose relationships or, you know, business relationships over his shitty decision to not help somebody. That's a tweak. Pointing guns at the guy? Not so much tweak. Not so much a tweak. And it it empowers an entire industry to go around looking for people who haven't uh, saved drowners and uh, (laughs) and creates a drowning industrial complex. Uh, That's that's tweaking. That's That's funny. That's that's her tweaking. That's Um, tweaking a la drugs, not tweaking. (laughs) But I I could I I was going to say it, but I, I thought that'd be weak. Uh, but to conclude that there is more to freedom. <laughs> it than was weak. I deserve that. That <clears throat> there is such a thing as nonviolent uh, exploitation that people shouldn't be rewarded and punished for accidents of birth, that we have moral obligations that extend beyond what we contractually occur. This is to concede the entire Nozekian edifice is structurally unsound. No, it's structurally sound uh, backwards again. Uh, as as opposed to government, very, very sound. Violence doesn't count when this group does it. Ooh, very sound. Yes, uh, uh, unbelievable. She's throwing so many stones for being in such a glassy house. Yep. 
Um, and, and the concession is that um, she's using extreme cases. And so if you conceded that, she, you know, she's only right in these instances because the cases are extreme. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, it would be a valid undermining of her counter arguments, but I don't see anybody here doing that. Uh, so far, everybody on this stream is at least specifically has just said yes, like that yes, uh, Wojak meme. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, are people under no obligation to do anything they don't freely want to do or freely commit themselves to doing? Yes. Like, <laughs> the, the, the Chad confidence. Yeah. The, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I will I will not go on. This is my favorite line in the entire thing. Page 195, the proponent of free market morality has lost his foundations. The reason that is so important is because if you look at – when I see the dominant philosophies today, they make these strong moral claims. People have a right to health care. Of course, you and I recognize that as – slavery and a disincentive to provide health care, which makes people worse off and is immoral. However, that has gotten people very riled up. This uh, inequality of income is unjust. They'll say racism is unjust, colonialism unjust. This is imperialism. This is terrible. This is sexism, which is inherently bad. They don't say, um, I, I have, I think sexism needs some tweaking. So therefore we should, uh, m maybe have a committee to talk about how we can have more efficient sex. They say it's inherently bad and th yeah. there's no if, ands or buts. They're taking a strong moral position and that's how AOC and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama, even when he was running in, in 08, um, you constantly see, uh, th this uh, th this sort of routine, and that should give us the idea of the the strong arguments for the free markets are this unapologetic capital capitalist acts between consenting adults. Everything else is slavery. Maybe not use the word slavery, but because uh, like I will call conscription slavery in reality, in technicality, uh, yes, jury duty is forced labor, but we should probably have a different word for that uh, th than uh, th than slavery. So, uh, I think uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, that once your foundations are taken away, then <laughs> you're not left to stand on much. You're left uh, to the tool of utilitarian calculations, which are always one study away from being debunked. Oh, there was research on this, <laughs> and it turns out it worked. Well, you're channeling Rothbard like directly. He wrote an article called "The Case for Radical Idealism," uh, and uh, I, I was so inspired by that back when I was. This was back when I was in the middle of running uh, for not governor in the Libertarian Party. Um, it it informed my entire apolitical strategy. Uh, this article says exactly what you're saying. There's, uh, if we look at the most successful political movements, it has been like you say, the left, which takes the most extreme demands for what they want. Um, all the time, full stop. They demand nothing less of their than their end goals. And then along the way, they accept every little compromise that exclusively moves towards those goals. So they demand the ends and then accept the baby steps along the way. Mm -hmm. And then you have all these libertarians in the party that are like, you know, we gotta, we gotta soften our message and, and talk about, you know, like, incremental improvements to, to law to get us closer. Like don't, don't demand to abolish the IRS and end taxation and, 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 um, uh, you know, end the, uh, ATF. No, no, no. Say let's reduce taxes by 5%. And it, Rothbard refuted that very well. You can, you can find that reading, uh, on my channel as well. The case for radical idealism by Murray Rothbard. Really good.
And you can even see it in the eyes of uh, all of the uh, or, or in the response to all the people who quit uh, the LP after Dave Smith and the Mises Caucus started making a big splash. Andy Craig being the loudest among them, uh, representing a lot of people, along with uh, Joseph Bishop Henchman, who was mm. the uh, chair after Sarwark. So he had said, you know what, this thing is just lost. It's so it's overrun by these bigots of the LPMC. My best advice is to run and hide and find, you know, maybe uh, I, I forget what he plugged exactly, but it was some sort of alternative, you know, let's uh, get politically involved kind of thing to uh, go door to door, whatever. The point is, is notice how they went from we're going to take on the military industrial complex, big pharma. We're going to take on Wall Street, the Republicans, the Democrats. We're going to take on this regulatory regime and we're going to defeat it. But they can't defeat Dave Smith, who is one third legion of skanks. Um, <laughs> they can't defeat LPMC, who has been around for like, I think Michael Heiss invented what, two, four, maybe six years ago uh, out of the Ron Paul movement. So that is how dedicated these people are. They can, the, the, uh, they, they can I can lift a thousand pounds. Uh, can you lift five pounds? No, never. Absolutely not. <laughs> that is impossible. And you know what? I quit. I'm not going to lift five. Well, now I know that you never took seriously lifting a thousand pounds because yeah. the lift, the thought of lifting five pounds made you quit. The LPMC is certainly proving Rothbard right in this regard. They're, they're advocating the extreme end conclusions of the libertarian principles. And if you just look at nothing else than the change that they've created inside the libertarian party, they've been more white. They've been more successful than anything else uh, in a very short amount of time. Like you said, only, in only five, six years, they've completely sort of overhauled the Libertarian Party uh, to some extent just by doing what we're talking about here. And it's gotten Dave Smith on Kennedy Nation on Fox News, which then got Scott Horton on. It got Dave Smith on Tim Pool's show twice. It got him yep. on the Joe Rogan Experience. Uh, he's been on there multiple times, but uh, him coming out against vaccine passports was the one where he made the biggest, uh, the, the biggest uh, splash. Um, is there anything else in this article? It doesn't look like I underlined anything else. Of course, she lies and calls it a safety net, which, of course, applies to everything except, you know, voluntary mutual aid societies. But it reiterates the rise in inequality. Anything else on this article that uh, stood out to you? Uh, I'll just read the last paragraph if that's cool, because it kind of it, it summarizes not only her point, but my objection to her entire article. She says, Rejecting the Nozickian worldview requires us to reflect on what justice really demands rather than accepting the conventional wisdom that the market can take care of morality for us. If you remain a steadfast Nozickian, you have the option of biting the bullet and embracing the counterintuitive implications of your view. This would be at least more consistent than what we have today, an ideology that parades as moral common sense. Her constant appeals to common sense are precisely nothing approaching an argument. That's the conclusion and summary I want to provide for for my opinion on this article. Nothing. Again, it's just you're appealing to this what you think common sense is in your circle of friends that I'm sure is totally different from mine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure happy it's common for that fact. <laughs> I, in fact, I guarantee it's common. Sensical? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, common yeah, yeah. nonsense is 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 what uh, it, it could more uh, more accurate uh, more accurately be called. Yeah. So very often uh, d d 
uh, we can criticize the terrible things around us, but seldom do we get the chance to allocate our energy toward making the world a better place. Voluntary virtue is one of the great mechanisms we can use to get a direct feedback mechanism and live this beautiful philosophy we love to talk about. What is voluntary virtue? Voluntary virtue is a, well, soon to be, we're uh, the applications have been filed, uh, a 501c3 nonprofit uh, organization that intends to find the principled, voluntarist, libertarian people that are in need in all this insanity that we're living through right now and find ways to do what we say uh, needs to happen in the world without, without begging government uh, to do it for us, to show people, to put action behind our principles, to put action behind our words. Rather, when, when, when people challenge us and they're like, well, how would we help the poor without government? Well, we're going to show you how. Voluntary virtue. We're going to do it. We're going to help the people in need. We're going to do it without guns and coercion. Um, th that's that's what it's about. Voluntary uh, well. virtue can be found on minds.com. We uh, also have uh, – has the Facebook page been taken down yet? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm walking Maybe. on eggshells waiting. We, 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 we yeah. haven't checked today. Uh, yeah. Where can uh, people find more information about voluntary virtue? Voluntaryvirtue.org is the website. We'll have every time we run a campaign. We've we've primarily been doing campaigns lately because we're still small and we're building up kind of a, a war chest. Is a wrong word for a charity. What would you call a war chest for a charity? Uh, a, a happy chest, chest. A treasure chest. <laughs> a treasure. Yeah. Okay. There you go. We're still building up donations to sort of start helping people. And so lately we've been doing various campaigns like Feed the Need, where we feed homeless people in Dallas, or you know we we did some stuff to help Lynn Elbricht uh, and Ross Elbricht and her situation. So. Um, we are constantly looking where I, I would say this is a call to a call to action, a call for help from the general public. If you know of good people that are in need, reach out and let us know. Voluntaryvirtue.org. Is there a way that people can participate if they themselves don't have a, a lot of money to donate? Uh, absolutely. We have kind of like our, our boots on the ground group of people. Um, we call them the Tactical Charity Society. It's a group of people that actually want to, rather than just, look, some people don't have time to go help, but they do have resources. That's that's what Voluntary Virtue is about. We will take your resources and put them to good work in principled ways. Uh, for the people that have more time than money, which of which there are many, uh, and you want to actually do something with your body instead of with your money, you can join the Tactical Charity Society, which is the group that, it's like the sidecar. When Voluntary Virtue goes in to help somebody in need, the Tactical Charity Society are, is a group of people that will show up and make actual, real, in-person help to the people in need. And it could be anything from throwing a party for, for a family that's going through a rough time, building a wheelchair ramp. Like The, the, the ideas are endless, but the point is to build an in-person community, uh, a strong in-person community of people that can help each other through this insanity that we're dealing with. And that, that's uh, one of the great things. It's it's not only you getting the chance to help people, you also are getting the chance to be part of a potential uh, c community. So when you, you know you're faced with, well, what if I lose my job? Well, you'll know a lot of people. You know, if, if I don't comply with this or that mandate. Well, the more people you know, the more options you'll have. The more friendly you know people, uh, the more friendly you are the more uh, people will want to be around you and you'll have sort of this uh, actual safety net, 
not the a, a fake Bismarckian safety net to make us mm. more reliant on the Kaiser, uh, you'll actually be getting like this harmonious both giving and receiving through uh, this voluntary mm. virtue and tactical charity uh, society. To everyone watching, uh, don't tread on anyone. Thank you, as well as on the Libertarian Institute, Patrick Smith of Disenthrall. Thank you for your time, brother. Thanks, Keith. I, I always enjoy it.